Do you want to capture meaningful conversations that you care about? Spotify for Podcasters allows you to make a podcast super effortlessly, distribute it automatically everywhere, completely free, and even earn money doing it. Did I say free while making money? What happened to capitalism? Use your phone or computer, hit press record, upload, and start creating today. You can also monetize your podcast super effortlessly through features like ads and subscriptions through the platform. If you have been following the Discover More journey, you know that I've been using Spotify for Podcasters since 2020. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters. Spotify.com slash podcasters to start creating immediately. We often tell ourselves we aren't enough because we don't have as much of this as the next person or as much of that, you know? But what often needs to happen is that you need to envision who you want to be and start making small steps towards that. I celebrate the small wins every day of what I'm able to accomplish in a day and don't beat myself up for what I can't because there's only so many hours in a day. There's only so many free hours you have in a day and you need to be able to take those and celebrate. If you even got that one email out you've been procrastinating on, that's a win. If you're able to start an idea and not necessarily finish it, that's a win. Any incremental steps you make towards getting towards who you eventually want to be is a win and we need to do more of that celebration in our lives than just focusing entirely on those big moments and the big wins. Uh, there's so much that happens in the moments in between those major life milestones that we need to appreciate a lot more. And that's what I try to impart on people when it comes down to not feeling like they're accomplished enough or doing enough or things like that. So. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Discover More where we strive to accelerate the learning process together through intentional dialogues. My name is Benoit. And my name is Aiden. This podcast was built on the foundation of approachable guests, synthesized experiences, and relatable lessons that will help you grow throughout your journey. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoy and continue to discover more. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Discover More. This week's guest is Casey Palmer. He's a Canadian content creator, IT project manager, podcast host, and a black father to two amazing kids in Toronto. Casey's the man behind his brand, Casey Palmer, Canadian Dad, where he shares his unique fatherhood journey through the lens of a multiracial family with sprinkles of Jamaican flavors. His blog has quickly risen to become one of the most influential platforms and one of the few places to find fatherhood content in the great white north. Casey has been mentioned in publications like National Geographic, Lonely Planet, and been featured on podcasts and radio shows dozens of times over. Casey, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. And I know I didn't write that intro because as soon as I heard two amazing kids, I'm like, wait, what? Mm, sometimes. <laughs> But I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think with this episode, and I think this is very evident on your blog, that you are very intentional with your identities and how you perceive your identity and how you share your identity with the world. And on all the platforms we're able to access to research for this podcast, you always pride your identity as a father, first and foremost, and then the mm -hmm. husband, secondly, which I admire very much especially identity is such a hot topic in the American culture nowadays. 
So we would love to start there. Why the fatherhood and how are some of the expectations of fatherhood have shifted for you when you're a child versus when you actually became a father yourself? And love to for you to bring us onto your journey of some of the lessons you've taken away and currently as the amazing father that you are. Thank you. That's you're basically the good. That's gonna be the entire podcast. So I'm gonna sit here for the next two hours and just talk about this. No, kidding. Yeah, fatherhood is something that I've had to have grow on me over time. Uh, when we first decided to have kids in 2013, it wasn't something like I didn't grow up being like I always want to be a dad. I know men who are like that and were very much like, hey, like this is a life goal is to become a good dad. For me, I was just married a few years to my wife by that point, and she had the timeline. She's the planner and just very much like, okay, this is going to happen at this time. Boom, 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 boom. And so we're just like, got to the point, she's like, we're, I think we should try for kids this year. And we had a conversations, uh, we had conversations about it several times over, and I got to the point where I was like, okay. She's like, yeah, we're going to try it because you never know how long it's going to take until you actually get pregnant. Yeah, first time. First time we try, guys. First time. Right away. And we were very fortunate. I know infertility is a huge issue. So we were very fortunate that we got pregnant as quickly as we did when we were both 29 still. It was something I had to work my way into. So I have a theory that a lot of dads who leave wouldn't do so if they were to spend six months with that kid. If they get into the first six months of fatherhood, that first time your kid smiles or laughs because you are in the room is a huge game changer. In the first bit of fatherhood, you kind of feel like the secondary parent because, you know, especially if you're breast, if they're being breastfed, because you don't have a strong purpose for the kid itself. You're more supporting your partner or the child's mother, if you will. It gets hard because you just kind of feel like a third wheel to this like really close relationship that they have. You know, you can see the bond, you see it in advertising, you see it in mom groups where mom and baby are so intrinsically linked together that as a dad, you're just kind of like, well, what about me? And you know, all the things that you used to do with your partner, there's no time for that anymore in those, those early days because your sleep schedule's wrecked and everything's all over the place. But you know, that first time they smile because your presence is in the room, because you've come home, it changes everything. It melts your heart and you're like, you know what? Everything's going to turn out okay. And they haven't left my side since, even though several times I try to get my own space. That said, my entire idea of fatherhood comes from, I was fortunate to you know, have my dad in my life. I'm better friends with him now than I ever was growing up. And he came from a stance of not having a dad. Like his dad, you know, was alcoholic, abusive, not present. And Jamaican culture can be a very complicated thing when it comes to family. My dad always says that we don't have a family tree. We have a family bush. The entire traditional family structure that we, you know, try to model in North America doesn't work the same way in the Caribbean. And so he had to learn from a very young age how to survive. Um, regardless of his parents' involvement, my, you know, his, my grandmother came up to Canada and left him with family when he was like nine or 10, really young. So he had to figure out how to manage himself and his siblings and situations from early on. And what he knew is that he never wanted to raise kids who would have to live in that same situation. So when he finally had myself and my two younger brothers up here in Canada, his form of love 
was working his butt off to make sure we never wandered for anything, to make sure we had a roof over our heads, to make sure we had clothes on our backs, that we never had empty bellies, et cetera. But that meant he had to work, you know, 12 to 16 hour days, five, six days a week running a restaurant so that he was able to provide for us. And the big difference between him and me is that he had to choose from a very limited set of options. He had to do, you know, what was necessary instead of what he wanted to do. And so whenever I think of fatherhood for me, I think of the intergenerational impact of everything that was sacrificed and everything that had to happen to get us to a point where, you know, my brothers and I are of the generation where I like to call it the comfort generation, where we don't have to work those long hours. Like I work an eight hour day. I have enough time to come home, uh, from the job in the before times and, you know, be with the kids, take them to their programs, be with them at their birthday parties they have to go to and things like that. I had a lot of time to be able to be involved in their lives the way that my dad wasn't able to do for me. And it wasn't until, you know, the kids started getting a little older that I fully appreciated the sacrifice that my dad had to make, not only of his own self-interest, but that actual time spent with kids because he had to choose one or the other. And so I try not to take it for granted because I know that situations can be very different for many different kinds of dads. And fatherhood for me, um, especially through the pandemic, I've learned is building a strong relationship with my kids so that they understand who I am to them as their dad. And I understand who both of them are individually to me as my kids, because they're very different personalities, but I want to make sure they live the best lives possible um, because of who they are and not in spite of it. I don't want to force them to be something they're not. I want them to do the best they can in their lives with the skills, abilities, mindsets, et cetera, that they have as individual people. So that sounds like a good answer for fatherhood wrapped up in many, many words. Yeah, the idea that really, I guess, shined in for me was like sacrifice through generations, right? I think speculating on familial generations, each generation wants to kind of carry forward or pass down an easier upbringing for the next one after. And similar in the story of your father to you, you didn't have to work these 16 hour days. Similarly, I imagine you're trying to pass down a similar better life for your kids. And I think that's kind of the powerful idea that comes up for me of just the power of fatherhood, family in general, making generations better for the people that come beside us. And I think where I'd kind of like to zoom in a little bit is your relationship with your kids. Cause I imagine as much as there's the power hierarchy of like father and son, I can imagine you probably learn a lot from your kids as well. So are there any like big lessons or things that really came up for you through this fatherhood process that, you know, your children seemingly through maybe it was a small incident taught you some large lessons, you know, maybe not something massive that happened, but just even in the everyday, just big lessons that come from your kids would be awesome to hear about. For sure. Actually, I do have a story that works really well in the context of this podcast, but I will say before that, on the entire idea of intergenerational sacrifice, I do worry slightly for my kids only because like i said we're currently in the comfort generation and you don't want them to get too comfortable or lose too much resilience when it comes down to the world around them because much of the world isn't what happens in these four walls you don't have the same access to resources or people who love you regardless of what you do the world can be a very challenging place and so i don't want to spoil them too much or have them like i want them to always feel like they can express who they are, but I want them to understand that it has to be within the context of a rule set of just like, when you're in this situation, it has to operate this way.
play and why, and I can explain it to them, but they, I have to get that situational awareness in them so that they don't end up in situations where um, I feel like I've underprepared them for the realities of the world out there. But that said, one thing I do enjoy about my kids is that they do have a relationship with me where they can feel free to express themselves um, freely and come to me with anything that's on their minds. And I actually had a moment earlier this week, I think, where my youngest at five, he woke up at something like 3.30 in the morning and he was complaining about his toe hurting. He had like a bit of a hangnails catching on his sheets and waking him up. And he was talking about being thirsty, you know, and being scared of the dark. And at first, you know, I thought that was a root of the problem, like very solvable issues where just like, okay, I will, you know, put a nightlight in over here. Here's a little drink of water and we'll clip your toenails so that's no longer catching on the sheets. But the more we talked, like he started to unload a lot on me about how much he doesn't like this pandemic life he's living right now, where he's not able to go to his favorite theme parks. He's not able to see his favorite friends. And I realized at that point that while I've been working my butt off throughout the pandemic to, you know, get them where they need to be, to keep them, you know, entertained and stuff throughout the course of this, I wasn't really thinking about their own thoughts and concerns and their own issues that they've been dealing with over the course of this. What, one thing I was alluding to before was that the pandemic has helped me actually see my children as individuals instead of just like, you know, these little guys I carry around from place to place. And so through all this additional exposure to my kids, I've got to understand what triggers each of them individually, you know, what they're going to want out of situations. And when my youngest was telling me about the fact that he, you know, was just kind of struggling with having to wear a mask all day or struggling with, you know, just starting school in this weird pandemic situation, it really ratcheted up my empathy, which is something I usually really suck at. Empathy is not my strong suit, I find anyway, as an individual, but I really felt for him at that point. And I think my stance towards my kids has kind of like softened some because of it. So instead of being the hard disciplinarian I'm used to being from a uh, Jamaican upbringing, I am getting to a point now where it's like, you know, sometimes I'm going to let them be them unless they use like maybe some really annoying laughs and voices sometimes just to like get under everyone's skin because they know they can. So on those moments, I'm just kind of like, stop, <laughs> stop now before some, you know, anyway, moving on. But yeah, I, I feel like there's, there's a lot more moments of empathy that I'm trying to weave into my approach to them because um, yeah, they have their own issues and worries too that, go beyond things I can solve through a sandwich here or a band-aid there. So I'm learning quite a bit more now than I thought I would. Yeah, definitely. The story you just shared really reminds me of that first, I guess, first interaction I really had with you on Clubhouse a little bit ago. And I made the idea of reframing fake it till you make it to do it until you become it. And you took it one step further to be it until you see it which took me a few days to process and figure out. And once I did, it was like a light bulb went off. It's like, oh, focus on the being rather than the doing. And I think your story, like as males, we want to just like fix the problem, solve the thing, get them mm -hmm. on nightlight, get them, you know, check all the boxes of what needs to be fixed. But what your story beautifully articulates is just embodying the being and like being empathetic, being compassionate for their, whatever they're going through, 
which I think can be applied to fatherhood in general or just the masculine as a whole. It's like we don't always need to fix the problem, even in relationship, whether that's romantic, interpersonal or familial. Sometimes I just need to show up and try and be there and be supportive rather than do a specific thing for a specific person. So I definitely appreciate that story. And it rings true for me, especially as a male at 27. I'd like to move a little bit into, you know, you were a father still are a father, but how that transitioned or like, where did the idea of using this fatherhood as the ethos for a brand? Like you started blogging about it. When did that light bulb of an idea come through? And why did you feel called to share on the internet around your experiences in fatherhood? Yeah, that's an interesting story. So I, (laughs) before blogging about kids, I was kind of just like a man about town going to different events and parties and talking about, you know, these cool things happening in Toronto. And it was very insular. It was very like, look at me, I'm here. Look at me, I'm doing this. And even the goals I had at the time were like, you know, to become like the best blogger in Toronto or things like that, where it was just very transactional like there wasn't anything there that i felt added a lot of depth to what i was doing and people read my stuff and i had great interactions and built some relationships from that but when we were going to have you know my first son in november 2013 i was thinking of hanging up my hat i was just kind of like you know what i'm gonna have a kid i'm not gonna have time to go to parties and write about this stuff and yada 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 but what that first part of my journey had done is surround me with a number of peers who could tell me is like, well, you know what? There aren't that many dads telling their stories in Canada in the digital space. You already have a wealth of experience when it comes down to storytelling in a digital format. Why not consider switching your brand a bit and going into your journey as a dad to see how that turns out? And, you know, I thought about it, sat on it for a while and realized it was a good opportunity to tell a truth that's not being told. and. While before becoming a dad, I didn't understand what the pressures of being a dad were and the lack of agency that we often have when it comes to the public space. Um, I didn't realize how few dads felt that they had the room and space to speak up on things that were, you know, fatherhood specific. I did start back then to just kind of like share this is what's going on here and this is what my life is like right now. In the seven plus years since, it's evolved quite a bit to say, okay, this is what I understand about myself as a dad and you know how it all comes together. And it was all from basically deciding not to give up when um, our first kid was coming along because there was an actual need to fill the space with more fatherhood stories from a very honest and authentic perspective. And so since then, you know, I had several other dad friends who've done it for a while and they moved off because what often happens is as your kids become older, you, you know, one, need to seek more permission to include their stories and what you do, because now that they have their lives, you don't want to expose what's going on in their lives when you're not leading their lives. They're not just, you know, these autonomous beings who aren't impacted by what you choose to share with the world. They very much have to have a stake in what you're putting together and making sure that you're not doing them a disservice. And I find that when you have parent creators who focus a lot on you know, inserting their kids into everything like, hey, look at this cute picture of my kids or here's what my kid's up to or kid, 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 kid. 
they lose themselves in the process. And one of my very intentional things to do over the course of building this brand is to not lose myself in the process. A lot of parents will get to a point, you know, when they get to empty nester mode, when their kids are ready to set off into the world, where they've put so much of their time and energy into the kids, that now it's 20 plus years later, and they have no sense of self anymore because they lost it. Their identity is being transferred over to their children. Whereas with me, I I feel like the blog and all the stuff I created is a good self-check-in throughout the process because what I want the brand to ultimately communicate is not so much here is what my life as a dad looks like because of my kids. I want to communicate here's the man I'm becoming because I'm a dad. And that is that was a very significant shift in my thinking a few years back where I realized that I couldn't do what I was doing forever. And as the brands I worked with changed because they went from diapers to playing with small toys and then, you know, they're starting to do more clubs, electronics, coding, whatever. Um, I'm still here. I find that when you're younger, you have a lot more life milestones between finishing school, getting that first job, getting married, you know, having kids, etc. But then as you get older, it all starts to I don't want to say plateau, but it all starts to become like, you know, time doesn't have the same significance to your accomplishments are of a different nature. You can choose to focus more on your kids' accomplishments and measure your worth through that. Or you can choose to use your time in order to work yourself towards a larger accomplishment and you give yourself more time to come up with, you know, to get towards the accomplishments you want. Nothing's on a three, four year scale anymore. It could be on like a 20, 30 year scale, which is why you see uh, board executives in their 60s and they've done 30 years of service towards something because they realize that you have a longer stretch of time to work with to reach whatever you're trying to do. So it came originally from... I don't even want to say it's on a whim. I think it was just kind of like we recognized there was a need for it at the time when I started back in 2013. And now the longer I do it, the more I realize there's so much yet to be done when it comes to the space to normalize fatherhood, to you know give more agency to fathers everywhere. And so now I'm working towards a larger objective than I would have ever thought of seven years ago. So... So from both of your storytelling, I notice a very keen insight and in your ability to have this unique perspective and constructive way of viewing everything. So for example, in your first story, you talked about you're very hyper aware about the difference between empowering versus enabling because you want to empower your kids, but you don't want to enable them to be too spoiled because like you talked about the four walls that your kids live in aren't the reflections of the reality, right? It's a parts of reality, but it's not the reality. And through your most recent storytelling, you just talked about how you are able to reframe your perceptions and your relationship with time from three to four years increments into 20, 30 years increments. And I think it's that zoomed out and expanded versions or your perceptions of time horizons gave you this ability to not just be patient, but truly to see yourself in a whole new light, which I'm sure is attributable to your kids, your families and all that. But like, where is that insight and where is that ability coming from for you to like even back then? So I know you told us that you created your first Internet or your you ventured into the Internet world back in 1998 and you wrote your first blog post in 2001, which is mm -hmm. 20 years ago. And you started your website in 2013. And I think like in today's like world where people like to see success on a pedestal, they only mm -hmm. see the pinnacle moment, but they don't see the years of work that went in the back end. Right. And a lot of people view these cultural phenomenons as an overnight success, but it's not overnight. Mm -hmm. They put in decades of dirt work and full work one by one. 
and you obviously embody all that so i'm just curious to see like where did that ability come from is it from your family is it just your natural trait but like we love digging into like the humans thought processes especially you as the guest on the show yeah there's um so many influences that have given me the drive to keep working at working towards my potential i know that i have a stubbornness from my father like you can't run a restaurant for 20 years without having a certain amount of stubbornness and drive to continue high level of customer service and quality assurance with what you do the restaurant was like a second family to us. We were very close with everyone who worked there all the time. And it was always particularly interesting for me as the owner's son because people would, you know, clown on me a lot more just because they wanted to make sure that it didn't feel like I was being, you know, having preferential treatment. So that was always interesting. And my mother's always been more the creative one. Um, she did a lot of creative writing when she was young. I've, you know, kind of gone through some of her old writing and stuff like that to kind of get an idea of who she was, who she's become, things like that. What I was fortunate to have throughout my life are, you know, sets of peers around me who would encourage me throughout my process of growing up. So even in high school, I spent most of my high school years in a private high school where I was one of three black kids in a school of 600 people. And so I always had this, you know, standout identity where people would see me from a mile away. You just know that's Casey. And instead, in the first year I was there, I was very shy and reserved. And then in the second of five years I spent there, I just leaned into it entirely. I was just kind of like, okay, well, if you're going to see me, you're going to see me. (laughs) (laughs) And I started uh, actually writing this story series for a school newspaper called The Funk Master, which was about this guy, you know, he's dressed in 70s attire, had an afro and everything, and and he's fought crime, basically, and wrote this entire series over the course of four years, which was almost, I look at it now, it is, it is horrible. It is the worst fictional writing I probably have ever put out of my system, but people knew me for it, and they knew me for this audacious writing of, like, you know, someone who's putting out these stories of this character I just came up with, and I used to draw comics based on everyone in the grade and things like that. I've always had people encourage me in ideas, no matter how ridiculous they are. And that has caused me to experiment over and over again. And I I really like what you said, Benoit, about it not being an overnight success, because I probably failed at three or four blogs before my current site. Throughout the 2000s, especially, like I started them for all the wrong reasons. I started one as an art blog when I had really not enough time to commit to a regular schedule. I don't do well with routine and schedules, which I discovered over time. I need to go with my own flow. Um, I had one where I was like, I'm going to blog every day. Again, routine and schedule. I'm not going to do an everyday blog, which funny enough, I did do 320 out of 365 days on that, which surprises me to this day. But I'm not one who's going to sit down and follow routine well every day. And I remember in 2010, I started a blog with the sole purpose of like making ways to find an extra $20,000 outside of my day job, which doing things for money's sake alone is not me. That's not how I operate. And so I tried all these fail starts over and over again because I was like, okay, here's my next great idea. Here's my next thing. And then in this last decade, it's been more, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And it came from just being willing to try over and over again and fall on my face, get up and try something new. And even within the context of the last decade, there have been times I've put things out as a content creator, which have gotten massive amounts of blowback just because I was insensitive or not thinking or ignorant of, you know, the context around things I was putting out. So 
A lot of it comes from the willingness to try. And what you were saying earlier, Aiden, is exactly it. Um, be it until you see it. A lot of it is just being willing to go out there, try something, understanding that it could go well, it could go badly, or alternately, the, the world might not care at all. It might be completely apathetic. You might put something out on social media and get zero likes. You might put something out and no one ever sees it. And you have to be willing to accept that as a reality and possibility of, you know, what could happen. Be okay with it and move on to the next thing and continue to improve at what you do until it clicks. In the first while of doing things, you know, it was really myself and any other friends involved who would see it for the most part. And there are some moderate success here and there. People might pick things up once or twice, uh, you know, the odd news article here or there. But now it's it's definitely more of an engine with its own momentum where because I understand a lot more of what I'm trying to communicate and I understand how to package and communicate it so that there's the human element as well as the element of how to get things seen on the Internet. It's taking all these years of learning and experience and the confluence is starting to happen of like, this is what it's supposed to look like when you're starting to work towards your potential. Uh, it takes a lot of years of learning and reading really, I guess, if anything matters to you, it's not boring, but you know, someone would look at a book on search engine optimization as something as dry material. For me, I love it, but others might be like, what, why are you reading that? But you, you take all that information and you take all that knowledge and you apply it towards whatever it is that you feel called to do in your life. And eventually it gets to the point where it's just like, okay, you feel like it's part of your identity. It's part of your core being and you keep working at it because it matters to you. And that's where I feel like I am with all the stuff I'm working on right now. It all matters to me and more so it, I'm making stuff that matters to other people. I want to not, the way I was saying before, before kids, it was very insular. The stuff I was creating, I might've liked it, and then eventually it might have mattered, but just to me. I need to make stuff that matters to more than just myself, because otherwise, what am I contributing to the world around me? Yeah, I don't know if that answered the question at all. I went to some real tangents there. <laughs> no, we love that. I mean, we live for the tangents on one hand, and there's a lot of stuff that I want to unpack with that, because it almost seems like you're similar to what you said about time, about zooming out the time lens. You're almost zooming mm -hmm. out the mission lens. At least that's mm -hmm. kind of what it seems like. Like, what's the larger calling? Not... What can I convey in this blog post, but what can I convey in this entire website or this entire mission, which I think is just a really interesting way of seeing life and a mission calling all together. And then the other thing that really jumps out is the different lenses you bring to the world, like your website, which is in itself a creative element. But then you just talked about Google optimization and search engines. Like I think having that right brain, left brain kind of combination, I think is super intriguing of just the way to kind of carry out and move a mission forward, right? It's rarely, we talk a lot about just embracing different perspectives. I think each school of thought has something to contribute and you're taking schools of thought from seemingly interrelated things, but finding that overlapping interconnected lens, which I definitely love. And I want to zoom in a little bit on like some tangible stuff from your blog and you can take this either in one of two ways. So either you can do an end or a one or the other or the most impactful piece you've ever written, either externally very popular or internally like, wow, I really needed to write this and learn some things. Okay. I have two that immediately come to mind. The first one, I don't know about your life situation as much, Aiden, but Benoit, I want you not to kill me when I put this one out. So... <laughs> It's, it's a shameful piece, if you will. I think I wrote it in 2017 or 2018. And the premise of it was Father's Day isn't Mother's Day part two. And the rationale behind it was like, I saw someone post up on Twitter, happy Father's Day to all the single mothers out there. I was incensed at it by first, where it's just kind of like, 
we need a day. Like, what the heck? Like, you know, like moms have so much more attention for the rest of the year. Give us one day. And I was really angry about it. So I wrote this post, shared it on my Facebook. And as one should expect, the blowback was enormous. <laughs> like I had a lot of friends, close friends who grew up in single mom households who were just kind of like, you know, and their dads were either not there for various reasons. Like they were never there. Some of them were abusive, et cetera, et cetera. It took me some time to really understand that Father's Day isn't about the entire idea of being a father in general. Every family and every household should be allowed to celebrate Father's Day in a way that's befitting of their family. And so I started really diving into the idea of, you know, the different makeups of families, what that looks like, and realized that the entire statement that Happy Father's Day to all the single mothers out there it's a validating way to say that, you know, we see you and we see that you're playing the role of multiple parents in one person. And that's something I had to learn. I like to say I put my foot so far to my mouth that I was shitting toenails. <laughs> and I was like, I had to learn that, that I was, you know, so wrong for what I was thinking. Um, but because of that, I've been able to forge better relationships with, you know, those same friends. I did a couple podcast episodes with single mother bloggers who were sharing their stories. And every time I see another dude who, you know, wants to feel entitled or whatnot about being a dad and not have that empathy, I'm just kind of like, here's a story for you of why you're wrong. And so good came out of it, but I've always had a willingness to learn. If someone wants to call me on being wrong, I am willing to take that input and understand why I'm wrong. And then I'm willing to grow and change from it. That's something I think is so key and so few people are willing to do. You need to be in a position where um, if something goes wrong, you don't try to further impose your views on those people. Like, you know, you look in the comments on social media and people fight back and forth on things. You have to be more willing to understand that there are other perspectives than your own and understand why your perspective may not be the correct one in that particular situation. So that was a huge learning one that I that I still feel a little bit of the sting from in a good way. Like it's something that I don't forget because it was such a, it was a huge moment for me to figure some crap out. But also, I guess for the other one, for a huge impactful one, I think the moment I started realizing that my words had some weight to them. So for a lot of brand work, like let's say press trips and things like that, you usually have like, you know, a, uh, group of individuals you approach and you want to take them out to go on an event, check out like a site or, you know, they'll drive you out, fly you out, whatever. And I remember it was 2014 or 15 and there's this group trip to somewhere. doesn't matter where, but I was invited to go on and I was like, you know, back and forth with the company organizing it. And, you know, at one point and I was giving them details and confirmed things and the communication just died to a halt. It just vanished. Didn't know what's happening. Kind of left it at that. And then when the trip came up, it was obvious I wasn't going on it, but then I saw, you know, they replaced me with someone else who kind of hit more of the demographic they were looking for, perhaps were, you know, blonde, blue eye, they would do well on social and everything. I felt more offended, not that they hadn't chosen me to go on the trip, but they disregarded me so much that they decided to just cut off all communication and move on entirely. And I wrote a piece around that one, around um, an open letter to the brand who decided I wasn't worth it. And it was just kind of like this thing, an open letter, just the fact that, you know, I'm here 
and I'm working my butt off. I have feelings. And it's like, if you told me there's a reason why you wanted to go another way, we could, it would have been good. But to find out through other means was just massively offensive. And I wanted to let them know I am worth it. And this is a lesson that I'll learn for the future to like, you know, look at things a different way because people aren't always going to see the value in you that you see in yourself. You know, that went the other way that had a huge reaction from people who thought that it articulated well the entire feeling that you have to fight with all the time as a creator, that you are being judged by the number of likes, number of followers, you know, whether a brand thinks you're the right fit or things like that. And that would be the, I think, a first step on my entire journey to separate myself from that thinking that, you know, it's all about the numbers, it's all about the metrics and more, do I believe in whatever I just put out? I think that example was so needed because if I hadn't had that, I might've still been going down the same trap. People, I know people who do it for a decade where just like you're chasing the high of that first time you get like a viral piece or whatever, instead of trying to find the value in each individual thing you put out or put the love and care into it, that, that all that stuff is relevant. All the metrics don't matter as much. If you put out, I fully believe that if you put out good stuff into the universe, uh, into the digital world, especially, it will, recoup things accordingly people will recognize the value of good stuff when they see it so just focus on putting great stuff out there is what the lesson i learned from that piece and i think that seamlessly transitions into the next topic which is imposter syndrome because i think you are able to have this unintended but in a way through hindsight and retrospect a very blissful moment that helps you almost accelerate your thought process where looking back now, in retrospect, you were able to save potentially two decades of heartaches, of mental health issues, of all doing the things for the wrong reasons that you've alluded to beautifully. And I think imposter syndrome shines through, through storytelling. And you're very, very self-aware. Your self-awareness shines through your entire for the past like 40 minutes. But how would you, A, construct a way to approach imposter syndrome that's in a sustainable way, because a lot of people, like imposter syndrome isn't, you get it, and once you fight through it, it never comes back. It's a cycle. People battle it through their whole lives. I battled it in my 20s, and I'm sure I'm gonna battle it in my 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, so it's a lifelong process. And I think a lot of people view personal development as, oh, once you have the toolkit, you're good. That's not the case. Mm -hmm. You have to cultivate the toolkit. You have to apply the toolkit. You have to reflect upon a toolkit, and you have to refine upon the toolkits but you're going to experience similar challenges for the rest of your life because life itself is a journey, which is another theme that I hear through your stories. So how would you advise people that's younger who don't have the seasoning as you do for them to, in a very healthy, but also productive way to approach impulsive syndromes and how they can thrive as creatives? I mean, I'm really fortunate, you know, creeping up on 38 this summer. I have insights I've been able to develop that a lot of people don't get to their 40s or 50s. And the reason for that comes from a few different things. It's, I like to think of my life as like, I'm trying to lead two or three lives simultaneously. So I've packed in several more decades of experience I should have later on and packed into my life from just being, you know, willing to try so many things at once. Also, when I started my day job, the average age of my coworkers or coworkers across the organization of 60,000 people, their average age is like 47, 46, 47. So when we started at 23, we were learning life lessons for people 20 years or senior. And so we made certain decisions a lot earlier on in our lives. Like we started dating at 24, we were married by 26, 27, and then, you know, decided to have kids at 30. We learned a lot of life lessons about creating for the life we want in the future much earlier on in life than 
we would have otherwise. So we were planning for what our 40s and 50s could look like by the time we were hitting 30. So we started doing things at an earlier stage to get us ready for that. How that links back to imposter syndrome is that we often tell ourselves we aren't enough because we don't have as much of this as the next person or as much of that, you know? But what often needs to happen is that you need to envision who you want to be and start making small steps towards that. I celebrate the small wins every day of what I'm able to accomplish in a day and don't beat myself up for what I can't because there's only so many hours in a day. There's only so many free hours you have in a day and you need to be able to take those and celebrate. If you even got that one email that you've been procrastinating on, that's a win. If you're able to start an idea and not necessarily finish it, that's a win. Any incremental steps you make towards getting towards who you eventually want to be is a win and we need to do more of that celebration in our lives than just focusing entirely on those big moments and the big wins uh there's so much that happens in the moments in between those major life milestones that we need to appreciate a lot more and that's what i try to impart on people when it comes down to not feeling like they're accomplished enough or doing enough or things like that so i find that especially helpful being at home this entire time with no events or anything else going on i kind of doubled down on just doing little things every day to get towards my ultimate goals and you know, a year into pandemic living, I could say that I've accomplished a lot more at home than I ever thought I would. And it's just because without all the distractions otherwise that were in my life and putting value on perhaps the wrong things, taking all that window dressing away from things really helped me to dive deeply into who I am, what I'm about, what I'm trying to accomplish. And I encourage many people to do the same. There's one person actually who articulated this very well in a room of Clubhouse, who's uh, Jeff Hoffman, who's the mentor of a friend, Bianca. And he put three questions together that I think everyone should ask themselves at some point. The first question is, if you were to die today, what would people honestly say about you in your eulogy? The second question is, what do you want people to actually say about you in your eulogy? And then the third question is, what are you doing today to get to that point? And I think it's a good self-reflective piece to do now and then to just get yourself an honest opinion of who you are and what it is you're putting out into the world. And if you don't like it, the power is always within your hands to change it. You may feel powerless, but there is always the power in your hands to change your situation and who you are and work towards, you know, getting to the point you want to be as a person. So I focus on that. Those are really powerful questions, man. It really reminds me of the stoic philosophy idea of memento more, the reminder of one's death kind of beginning with the end in mind and having that overarching view of that this life will end at some point and kind of approaching it, not to say end in mind, but really trying to live every day that, like you said, the eulogy comes out the way that you internally want to. One of the ideas that you shared on the questionnaire really resonates for me in relation to what you just said. And you wrote, we all need to control our narratives and our own truths. And I'd really love for you to just unpack that a little bit. I mean, first and foremost, I want our audience to hear those words that you wrote, basic truth, and see how it applies to their life. But I'd love to hear you unpack that a little bit as to what that means in your life and why you think that's such a big component of your life's journey. I'm trying to figure out the best way to answer this only because there's a technical side of it and there's more of an emotional side of it. When I think of it as technical, Casey, I think of, you know, if you were to have a huge scandal pop up about you and, you know, people are writing articles about you saying, oh, Casey did that, Casey did this and stuff like that. If you were to, for instance, have a really solid website where people under go there to see your views on stuff, um, if you wrote your view on it, it would be more likely to hit the top of Google 
then all this other stuff people are writing about you because you've taken the time to control your narrative and say, hey, this is where you go for information on me and the stories I have to share. And you're you know, ahead of it to say that I want you to hear what happened from my own mouth. Everything else, you know, there's still validity everything else. You can't control what the world is putting out about you and what they have to say. But you want to make sure your voice is still heard when it comes down to what's happening out there. So I kind of look at it from the standpoint of in a world full of noise, how do you make sure that your story, the way you see it, is articulated and you can then take all the other pieces of how other people perceive it and build it into that so that there's a more wholesome truth of what it is you're trying to articulate about your experience. So that's part of the reason why I've always had a website and always been a blogger because it all kind of links back to this hub of here's all the information you need. From a more emotional standpoint, that means to me that you need to understand that your story is your story. Your successes are no greater or lesser than the next person. They are as significant as you want to make them in the context of your own life. Whatever you want to celebrate, you celebrate. Whatever you lament, you lament but you need to be in control of the way your story is told and how you see yourself as a participant in your story at any given time. That gets manifested in so many different ways. For me, you know, as a writer, that means writing down my thoughts at almost you know, any time possible. I always have a notebook with me. I'm always jotting out, you know, ideas and feelings and things like that. For other people, it may be podcasting. It might be talking over coffee with friends. It could be, you know, painting, it could be photography, um, but whatever that looks like, you need to be able to create things, whether that's going to be as tangible or as intangible as you want to look at it, but you need to be able to create things that reflect who you are and your truth at any given time so that you can, you know, not hold that within and not ever share it in, in some form. And you don't have to share it with the world. It could be in a private journal, but things aren't meant to be holed up inside of us. We need to express in whatever way is befitting of us so that the narrative is expressed and recorded somewhere in some format. And the more we do that, the more we start to understand what our narrative actually is. And the more we start to appreciate that it's like a muscle that you're training. The more you do it, the more you're able to discuss and articulate your narrative the way you want to articulate it. And the more comfortable that idea becomes to you over time. So I think it's hugely important that we all control our own narratives because otherwise, if you don't control your narrative, the world will. And the world doesn't know you like you do. So you need to actually step up and be able and be willing to, you know, put your back into figuring out what your narrative is and how you want to tell it so that no one else is going to take that away from you. Yeah, it's extremely powerfully said. And I think if you go a layer deeper, uh, this was Aiden's idea that he shared with me during our retreat weekends most recently, that we are ourselves the creators of our truth and narratives that you've mm -hmm. said so beautifully so, but we're also the co-creators of our narratives, right? Because my actions and my words impact your words and your actions. And that's the beautiful thing about humanity. It's so interwoven through the web of potentiality and possibilities. And of course, you are known for a Canadian dad <laughs> on all platforms. You carry this amazing, vibrant fatherhood and father energies. But it's we'll be remiss if we don't mention your your partner, who I'm sure is a supportive pillar. And since we're talking about the co-creators of our narratives, we'll love to talk about your partner and how she has contributed to your narrative writing as a father and a husband, but just your life overall. <laughs> all right. 
Let's talk about Sarah. It's been interesting because, you know, we got together uh, in January 08 and it's been a lot of growing as people since you start as one set of people and as time goes on, you become an entirely different set of people. So we are very different as individuals than we were uh, back when we first got together. And you go from okay, this is who this person is. We work well together. And then, you know, as a few years go on, you're good. And then you have kids and you're spending like, I don't know if, if these new people we are are working as well together as they did before. But then you find a new level of comfort in that. And I think that's the ebb and flow of how things work over time. And <laughs> funnily enough, I think the biggest contribution in some ways towards, you know, this entire second life I've been building for us is for Sarah's just to kind of stay out of the way and that she like trusts me to, you know, represent ourselves properly uh, when it comes to putting stories together and things like that. I know everyone's preferences. I know what they want to show up as and who they don't want to show up as and things like that. At first, she was really skeptical of this other side of my life because she's, you know, there's the traditional way of, you know, you go to a job, you make money, it pays towards, you know, your home and all that kind of stuff. But here I was doing all this outlandish stuff all over the place between going to parties and writing about things on the internet and things like that. Um, but she was just kind of like, after a while, she was like, you know what, you're going to do it regardless of whether or not I, I say you should, but just be smart about it and we'll figure it out. And years later, now she fully understands that it's woven into my DNA. It's not something I'm going to separate at any time. But at the same time, it gives us the flexibility to, I think, live our lives to the best potential that we can. We don't have to worry about as much because, you know, additional revenue streams and things like that. So our family has been able to pursue things that we might not have been able to otherwise, whether that's a trip out to the Eastern provinces to like just check out different parts of Canada, whether it's uh, being able to, you know, anytime the kids are interested in any sort of idea or business venture, I'm like, I will invest in that and we'll see where it goes. Like gives everyone their own sense of agency to really be who they want to be. Uh, if you ask her who she is in the context of a relationship, she would say the boring one. She, you know, is is more about scrolling Facebook and checking up on recipes and other like cute mom and kid moments and stuff like that. I look at her Facebook feed and I fall asleep, but that's okay. It's good. It brings her joy, so it's good. But she, uh, yeah, it's a merge between her more traditional view of how things operate and my very non-traditional view of how things operate and finding the place in between where it all comes together. Uh, but it's been fortunate because she's a really awesome partner to have. And what I think we're able to model for our kids is what balanced parenting looks like. You know, share a lot of things 50-50 between um, dishes, cooking, bedtime, bath time, all that kind of stuff. So we try to show the kids that regardless of what we're both trying to accomplish in our lives, that we want to make time for the family, make time for them. And that's equally as important as making time for ourselves and each other. So. Yeah, it's been, a, it's been a good run so far. I think she's aiming for us to both survive till we're like 90 or 100. And I'm just like, yeah, all right, if you say so. But so far, uh, it's been 95% happy times, and I'm looking forward to increasing that percentage as we continue to go. Yeah, absolutely, man. It's almost funny that the moment you're talking about balanced marriage and upbringing, your kids come in, like the timing was divine. The moment you're talking about the balanced parenting, they chime in like that just feels like the beauty of fatherhood. And I think the other thing that you mentioned 
is that she gives like full trust in your creative expression, which is really what I where I'd want to go next because if she's giving you that trust by default, I think the next layer of that almost feels like a you trusting your own creative process, you trusting your own creative voice and expression, which I'm sure has had a much of an evolution since you started blocking 20 years ago. So you mentioned your process was very experimentation oriented, right? Just trying things, what does work, what doesn't work. But really want to double click on that idea of honing that process of say something does or doesn't work. Like, is it finding what feels right? Finding what audiences respond to? Like, how do you build that trust in your engaging and authentic voice? Just the creative process of trying what doesn't work, learning the lessons. Is it a reflection process? Is it a, how do we make this change going forward? Or really just like a repetitive action kind of standpoint? Because I think it's admirable that she has complete trust in your creative process. But to me, that makes me wonder about your creative process and how you learn to trust the words that you're putting out in the universe. Because it's very clear that you're very intentional in the macro mission of Canadian Dad and all of the content mm-hmm. that you produce. So I'd love to hear about your process there. Yeah. Uh, trusting your own process is a lengthy process in itself. What I found, you know, unpacking a lot of what you're saying there, Aiden, is that we're in a world where so much of what's on social media feels inauthentic. You know, it feels very manipulative. It feels very staged. You know, people are manufacturing what it is that they want people to see. And what I found in the last, you know, five, six years or so, I would say seven, is that I've been very willing to share good and bad times alike on my blog and social media and everything like that. I rang in New Year's 2013 with a case of Bell's palsy in my face and half my face was frozen. It looked like two-faced for like a few weeks until like I got the right the meds and acupuncture to help restore feeling in both sides of my face. And these are things that my parents would be were horrified that I'd willing to share like these intimate moments where it's just kind of like, you know, you look less than the ideal of what beauty is and things like that. But I've been very authentic, like an open book with a lot of my own stories when it comes down to my community online. But at the same time, you know, you you can only tell your own stories. You're not there to tell your stories of your spouse or your children or things like that. You have to figure out what works and what doesn't in those spaces. So when the kids are young, you can share lots of cute stories of like cute things they say or, you know, dances of what they're doing and things like that. But as they get older, you you do dial back on that a lot more because you're like, you don't, <laughs> I always like telling parents that as soon as your kids are school age, your biggest problem with kids is other people's kids. Because you start having clashing ideologies, you have other kids who sometimes they just aren't nice kids and they'll make fun of your kids for like the most ridiculous stuff. And there's been, I don't want to be as harsh as to label it as bullying, but there have been kids who've exhibited um, things in school where it doesn't make an ideal situation for my children. And, you know, I've had had to have terse conversations with other parents about their children's behavior and things like that. But it's a good reminder that you can't control what happens as they go out into the world and all you can do is prepare them for what the world may be like. So when I put things together, when I tell my stories, I want it to be very much, I want people to see things through my lens. And then once they understand where I'm coming from, 
then they can decide whether or not they agree with it, resonate with it, if they have a different view altogether. But I always open the door for discussion so that everyone can feel that once they have that view and they have that information, then what do you do with it next? And I leave that part as an open-ended part of the conversation. Um, but I think it's definitely goes back to the, you know, be to you see it, the show and prove type things where I think that if I wasn't able to show Sarah and honestly show my parents as well, because a lot of the, I don't want to call it delays, but a lot of the paths I went down uh, while growing up to business school, to becoming a banker and then going into government and things like that were directly due to my parents' influence and their view. I'd say that the North American immigrant parent mentality is pretty narrow in terms of what success looks like. So I went down that path for quite a bit until I started understanding how I could hone my creativity in something that could be equally as successful, if not more. And that kind of goes back to the split brain thing of like having this, you know, analytical traditional self versus the non-traditional self. So I feel like with the creative process, I had to prove things at first, not only to myself, but to my wife, to my parents and others who may be naysayers and saying, you know, this isn't going to work. Why are you putting all your time into this? And now that I've accomplished all of that, now I can finally come to terms with myself and say, okay, we've proven it to all the external factors of like, you know, what it is that we can accomplish with this. Now to yourself, what is it that you're trying to accomplish? Where are you trying to go with this? And how are we going to get there? And I find that's what keeps things fresh for me at all times. Um, I can go back and look at old pieces of content, have new ideas and rework them into something new and fresh, even if it was 15, 20 years old. I can take a look at all these discrete notes you know, around my office and start putting them together to something that's bigger than any of them more individually. And I take always try to figure out what the connections are between things so I can create the best possible end product for anything I'm putting out. And it's interesting because I think my website is a very good corollary for just who I am in my life right now. The older I get, the longer I work at it, the less pages there are as I start merging and things start coming together into a more core truth of what I'm trying to say. At the end of the day, I'd love to take, you know, it started as, let's say, 3,000 blog posts with a bunch of other stuff. Now it's at like more like 1,200. And as I look at things and where things overlap and when I am redundant, because I might have said something four times over in five-year increments, I start taking all that together and start putting it together to this one core thing as I can. Here's a look at it over the years and here's how it's grown. And this is why I've come to where I am today. And I find it a, the iterative process of that has been how I have learned to hone my creative process to become kind of like now it's more like a scalpel is the way I look at it as I carve through situations and try to inject my truth into it. Yeah, I sense a theme of ownership through the story that you just alluded to. And I love to take a slight pivot into the fatherhood, Casey, into the man of Casey, into your own stories, right? Because fatherhood is a part of your identity, but I think the human element of Casey comes first and foremost. And since ownership is so important for you because you've, I can already tell you're building little cornerstones of trying to instill ownership into your kids, but also I sense a lot of radical ownership into your own story, the way you own your narrative, the way you own your creative projects, the, the way you own and embrace your analytical self and creative self as you've alluded to beautifully so and in the questionnaire you've told us that you learned to form your identity amidst a cultural landscape that couldn't be farther from black but asked you to be black anyway right mm -hmm. despite and in spite of your blackness 
So I'd love for you to walk us through the journey because I'm a POC myself, but we have very different truth and very different lanes of experiences. So how have you owned your blackness in this cultural landscape that you've talked about both off mic and on the questionnaire? Yeah, uh, that's that's a ooh, short question, long answer. Okay, so what I didn't appreciate until later in my life was what my role as a black boy represented for my parents, especially in the spaces that I was in. So uh, I say this not to be arrogant or anything like that, but I exhibited, um, you know, high signs of intelligence at a pretty young age. I think I was counting at like, as the stories go anyway, I was counting around 18 months old. I was reading around two and a bit years old. Um, I ranked very well when I had to go for testing to get into enhanced learning programs in school. So my parents always had these huge hopes and dreams they put on my back when it came down to what I could accomplish because I had the book smarts to like do great things. And my mother had said many, many times in my youth that she would get on her hands and knees and scrub every house in Toronto if it meant I could go to Harvard Medical School. (laughs) (laughs) So you might not want to tell a six-year-old that, but hey, okay. So yeah, for a long time, you know, there was the entire idea that I could accomplish great things, but those great things were within the lens of like, this is what it looks like. And because of what my parents sought for me to accomplish, I went to private school. I would be, you know, in debate teams, chess clubs, all these spaces where black people did not exist. And my identity for a long time as a black person, I'd say blackness was kind of like erased in my mind until I maybe hit my late teens, early 20s, because my focus was always on the accomplishments I was doing as Casey, rather than how it relates back to my race. And, you know, you notice that you don't have other people in the room who look like you, but you don't pay much attention to it because you're focused on what it is you're doing. And you have rules that your parents give you and things like that to make sure you stay safe, et cetera. But what I understood later on, so 20s, my 20s were really about the discovery of what it meant to be Black, understanding a lot more about Black history and things like that. In my 30s, now that I have kids in my 30s, I understand what it is that I represented to my parents at the time when I was growing up and why we had so many struggles as we tried to reconcile between, you know, Casey, the doctoral candidate, apparently, <laughs> and also like Casey, the artist, or Casey, you know, the the musician and things like that. What I represented for them was a way to break through the chains that they felt all their lives when it came down to being a Black person in Canada. They only felt that they could pursue so many opportunities and things like that because of the nature of the world around them, because of how much education they had the freedom to obtain and things like that. And me, with all these skills and abilities, I had the opportunity to go and break through that and, you know, live life on my own terms and be as vastly successful as I wanted to be. But the personality of who I was wasn't to be a surgeon or anything like that. I I can't focus on one way of living for long enough to just like be like, okay, I'm going to just focus on these books, get this degree, focus on this book, get that degree. Going to university for me was painful. Like it was so painful to try and like study these things I didn't want to learn and try to get grades so I could get a degree. I eventually did do it, but it wasn't something that was natural for me. 
So finding that blackness, like, you know, there's the entire idea of carrying your entire, you know, people on your shoulders as you try, try to strive for success. And that was what I was saddled with at a young age without knowing I was saddled with it. And then in my 20s, it was more kind of like rebelling against that and trying to like just be my own person and find my own space. And in my 30s, I really started to merge all that together. Like I understand the value and worth of being a black man in Canada and being a black dad in a space where there are no other black dads for the most part in Canada talking about it. So I understand the value of that, but I also understand the value of have my own individuality and the scope of that and finding a way to merge those together in order to best express myself. And I, in all honesty, I don't think I excelled at that until, you know, the events after George Floyd. And I found myself growing up really quickly in the last year after that, where I, like, you know, I accepted being a black man for the, my thirties, but is always kind of downplayed like I do Black History Month series but I don't feel like I was showing up as black consistently throughout the year I was just kind of like yeah you can see it you accept it like it's implied don't worry about it but then after that I had I got really intentional about like talking about things that you know bothered me or things I'd experienced and whatnot and I think the community rallied behind it and it's made me a better storyteller and creator for it because I'm willing to come to the table bringing all of me and not just some of me so yeah, it's been an interesting journey through Blackness through you know my life so far. And I think it will be just far more intentional about it in the years to come. Thank you for listening to another episode of Discover More. We release a new episode every Monday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And would really appreciate if you have subscribed and shared this with your friends. We hope you enjoyed this episode and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues.